All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. Here we go now with the date with David Eby and his widely anticipated announcement last night. He will run for the NDP leadership to replace John Horgan. He had a large show of support last night from the NDP caucus and the cabinet. Looks like he will run unopposed. Just about all of his potential opponents have dropped out here. He is a shoe-in to win this thing. If no one steps up to challenge him, the party will simply acclaim him as the leader. David Eby could be the premier by October. He was a guest this morning on the Simi Sarah show. Here he is talking about all that support he has received from his colleagues. Have a listen. And I think that's why I have 48 of my colleagues supporting me. And uh, and they think that I'm the person that can help us continue to deliver uh, and to stay uh, unified and focused on British Columbians' interests. And uh, and I'm very flattered that they think so. And I'm, I'm happy to put my name forward. All right. David Eby's a lock to be British Columbia's next premier. But can he win an election? Can he defeat the B.C. Liberals? Let's discuss now with my guest, a BC Liberal leader, Kevin Falcon. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Kevin, thank you for coming on. No problem, Mike. Great to be on. Okay, this is the worst kept secret in BC politics. We all knew he was going to make this announcement. Your thoughts on it? Well, first of all, I, look, I welcome him into the race and I, you know, uh, give him credit for stepping forward. It's not an easy job, and especially when you have young kids as he does and I do. Um, you know, there's a sacrifice involved. Uh, you know, having said that, uh, he's no John Horgan, I can tell you that much. He's exactly the kind of radical sort of extremist that I've spent my entire adult life uh, opposing. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have him in the race, to be honest with you. How is he radical and extreme? Well, you know, look, look at his history, right? And you know, when he ran Pivot Legal Society, he was uh, coming up with books on how to sue the police. Uh, he's a very anti-police, uh, you know, as an attorney general. You know, I think his record has just been awful. Crime is out of control. The catch and release program he's been running has, has resulted in our streets being terribly, terribly unsafe. I mean, just recently in Yaletown, that poor young man, 29 years old, stabbed to death. You just saw a senior the other day sprayed in the face with bear spray. You've got four people a day in Vancouver alone that are being attacked by random strangers, Mike. That's almost 120 a month. And I can tell you, I'm in Prince George right now. They got the same problem in Prince George, Quinnell, Williams Lake, every part of this province. And, and, and this, this soft on crime approach, frankly, has been very, very unhelpful. Okay, well, if, if you want to go back 20 years to when he was uh, an activist and civil libertarian, sure, you can find stuff where he criticized the police. But during his tenure as attorney general, I mean, is there anything to criticize there in terms of his attitude toward police or police services? Yes, yes, there is, frankly. Um, look, if you talk to the police, they don't feel uh, like they're valued or respected. Um, you know, I think you've got a culture where he's given direction to Crown prosecutors to go soft on people that are involved in repeat offenders. The, the, the BC Urban Mayor's Caucus, which is the mayors of the largest cities, wrote to him begging him to stop this catch and release program, and they pointed out yeah. some shocking statistics. Vancouver... 40 people, 4-0, are involved in 6,385 negative interactions with the police last year alone. So, you know, this, this, this constant catch and release is creating, a, I think, a very challenged uh, environment, right. whether it's in Victoria, Vancouver, Prince George, wherever. Okay, I think crime is a major issue. We've covered it a lot here on the show, too. And Simi Sarah asked him about that 
this morning about some of the the crime that we're seeing, especially in Vancouver, other urban centers, people feeling unsafe. He had an interesting answer to that, I thought. Let's have a listen to what he had to say here on the issue of a crime and urban crime, and I'll get your thoughts. Here's EB this morning. Uh, e, but on cancelled criminal trials, Tim. During the pandemic, a huge number of criminal trials were cancelled. Uh, judges were extremely reluctant to sentence people to prison to wait for trial, and so our prison populations decreased by about 30%. And a lot of those folks who would have been in prison, people who are... Uh, uh, struggling with mental health issues, who are uh, struggling with addiction, uh, we're suddenly in downtown cores uh, across the province. Okay, so basically saying that the pandemic caused some backlogs in criminal trials and that there were people on the street basically should have been in jail. Your thoughts? Well, look, um, you know, they keep trying to use the pandemic to cover everything uh, that's gone wrong in British Columbia. I don't think it's appropriate. The fact of the matter is, that what they call no charge assessments. That's where the police uh, submit charges to the Crown prosecutors, you know, for people that have committed a crime. They are up 75% under David Eby. That means that they are not charging people that are committing criminal activity. And I, I can tell you one of the biggest problems I hear talking to folks on the street is that they know there's no consequences. So they can continue to be involved in criminal activity without any sense that there's going to be a consequence. That's the biggest problem. He's overseeing it. He can't just keep trying to blame it on COVID his leadership that's resulting in these outcomes. And look, at the end of the day, this is all I care about, Mike. I'm sure David Eby's a good guy and he's got, um, he's got lots of good attributes. The issue I have a problem with is his policies and everything yeah. he has been touching is not working. Let's talk about well, housing. Well, hang on. Before we switch to housing, like when it comes to criminal sentencing, a lot of that is under the criminal code, which is federal jurisdiction. It's up to the discretion of judges they are independent from politicians. So, like, what could he do? Like, if, if you were in charge, how would you reduce all the crime? Make sure I work with the police and ensure that there's going to be enforcement of criminal activity that's taking place, especially those that are under the provincial jurisdiction two years less a day. There's lots of things he can do. But the problem is he's got a history, as you know, going all the way back to Pivot Legal Society, where he was very anti-police. And I think that that attitude is still in his head. I think that he's taken an approach that's not working. If I just ask anyone listening out there, do you feel safer in your communities? Have things got better in the last five years? You know, there's nobody that's answered yes in any community I've visited. Speaking to BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, let me play another clip here for you from David Eby on the issue you just touched on there on housing and the housing affordability challenge we face. Here's Eby speaking to Simi this morning. I'll get your thoughts. One of the uh, shifts, though, um, that, uh, that I would be bringing is an increased focus on government building uh, housing for the middle class. I think that, you know, government has never really had to build housing for the middle class. Uh, it's tended to be looked after by the private sector. But what we're seeing in British Columbia, and it's not just in Metro Vancouver, it's across the province, is uh, people can afford housing. They have good jobs, but the, the housing that they need is just not available. Okay, David Eby there are saying government should get into the business of building middle class housing. Kevin Falcon, your thoughts? Well, you know, this is unbelievable, to be honest with you. Look, he has been responsible for the housing file for years. We have the, let's look at the results. We have the highest housing prices in North America, okay? They said, the NDP said, they were going to build 114,000 uh, affordable housing units in the province of British Columbia. How many have we done? Well, let's check in. 7,200. Over 2,000 were started under the BC Liberals. You know, government's not going to build the housing we need. The, the issue we have 
is something he's ignored up until very recently when he heard me talking about it for the last year, which is we have a huge problem in housing supply. Government is not going to get us out of this problem. I can tell you government is probably the most inefficient possible builder of homes. What we need to do is make sure we get supply into the marketplace, flood the zone with all kinds of townhomes, condos, all the kind of housing that people need. Then you will start to break the back of housing affordability. But you've got people there that, frankly, they're good people. They mean well. They just haven't got a clue what they're doing. I've spent 10 years in the housing sector. I can tell you right now there's not a chance that, that, that the government is going to be able to build affordable housing. They haven't got a clue how to build housing. Look, just recently, BC Housing, he had to fire the entire board of the yeah. people that they appointed. I mean, and they're spending, wasting billions of dollars on contracts being given out without proper criteria. There's conflicts of interest. There's people that are overseeing the thing that don't know what they're doing. And you expect those people and David Eby to build affordable housing? I mean, come on. Okay, let's listen to another clip here of Eby. And I I thought this was interesting, sort of touching on the issue of housing supply here. Speaking to global news reporter Richard Zosman here, let's have a listen and we'll get your thoughts. If I'm successful, shouldn't expect a lot of radical changes from what John was doing. Um, but I definitely see some opportunities for us to respond to needs in fast-growing communities around housing, around essential infrastructure, around rewarding those cities that are approving the housing that we need. Okay, I thought that was interesting. He talks about rewarding cities that approve housing. And there have been some thoughts about the provincial government should step in and overrule municipalities who are not who are being very slow to approve new housing starts. That seems to be what he's hinting at there. Your thoughts? Well, again, he's taking an idea that I've been talking about for a year, which I'm, I'm glad, frankly. I've been saying from the very beginning that you've got to have a carrots and sticks approach. You've got to have the right incentives to get the uh, local governments to do the right thing, and you've got to punish them when they're not. Because the bottom line is we cannot have a situation where it takes five to six years to approve straightforward housing in the city of Vancouver, as an example, where they've got an NDP mayor. Uh, You've got to get housing supply into the market so that we can actually get some supply and help uh, young British Columbians know that they've got a chance to actually own a home in their lifetime. And it's not going to happen under a group of of people in, in the NDP that none of whom have a background in the business sector and understand what they're doing, quite frankly. I mean, I'm sorry, I find it frustrating because... They just haven't got a clue what they're doing, Mike. Do you think he should, last question for you, do you think he should call an election? I mean, this is a guy who's now going to be the premier without an electoral mandate. Do you think he needs one? Should we go to an early election in B.C.? Well, no, uh, that's why we brought in fixed election dates. But I don't for a second believe that he'll uh, stay you know, true to the fixed election dates. They broke the law once before during the pandemic when they called that quick election. Uh, I'm going to be ready for a quick election because I, I don't believe for a second, whatever he says, that he wouldn't call an election if he thought it was in his interest to do so. So we'll be ready and we'll make sure that uh, uh, that we uh, are ready to bring forward an alternative message and, and vision for the public of BC and make sure we win the next election. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the heat wave now that is just baking the United Kingdom and a lot of Europe right now. Britain yesterday shattered their record for the highest temperature ever recorded. That happened yesterday in the UK, 40.3 degrees Celsius. That's 104.5 degrees Fahrenheit, breaking the record they, they broke the record a little earlier in the day, so the records just kept falling like dominoes yesterday in the United Kingdom. The hottest day ever recorded, super hot in other parts of Britain uh, or the uh, Europe as well.
incredible wildfires breaking out in uh, the UK as well. Check this out. London's fire service said they had their busiest day since the Second World War yesterday, dealing with multiple fires with those record-breaking temperatures. Let's go live to London now. Uh, my guest, Laura Hood, editor f- with The Conversation UK, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Laura. Thanks for coming on. Hi. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great, Laura. Thanks a lot for, for doing this. Is it a little cooler today? It is a little cooler today, yes. Today is like an ordinary hot summer day, um, but yesterday was like nothing I've ever seen in my lifetime. It was quite a disturbing thing to live through. Yeah. Can you put it into words? Like, what was it like yesterday in London? So yesterday was like a it was like a kind of stifling heat that you were completely unable to escape from. And, and normally British people absolutely love to go outside in, in probably hotter conditions than they usually should. Um, any sign of hot weather when we're out in the parks. Um, but yesterday I had to go out um, on a necessary journey and the local park was completely empty of people. Um, the grass had turned brown. The leaves were falling off the trees. It was a pretty apocalyptic scene. Um, in London, where I am, everyone was staying inside with the windows closed and the curtains shut um, to avoid having to experience this very hot um, wind that was passing through. It was it was truly a, quite a thing to live through. Yeah. Do people in London typically have uh, air conditioning in their homes? No, we do not have a culture of air conditioning uh, in the UK. Uh, I think, you know, obviously in a lot of shops and public spaces, we do have air conditioning. And there's also there's talk of people sort of going out and buying air conditioning units um, today. But I think a lot of people are quite worried about that. We we recognise that air conditioning is not the solution to this problem. It, it's something that potentially causes a lot more emissions. So one person's cool living room is is just another contribution to the climate change problem. Um, but what we are certainly realising is that our infrastructure is just not equipped to deal with this kind of weather and some serious um, investment is going to be needed if this is going to become something quite common in the future. Um, our rail network in particular is has been severely damaged by uh, the heat yesterday and the companies that run our trains are talking about quite long-term damage having been caused that's going to take some time to fix yeah, there was uh, impacts on a lot of public services. Uh, I've been learning, including travel, schools. Were, were schools shut down or schools open? Um, many schools were open. A lot of schools do have air conditioning. So I think most schools were open if they could uh, be. I think a lot of people like myself were lucky enough to be able to sort of adapt their working hours around the heat. But that's not true for a lot of people. Um, you know, a lot of people do have to travel under um, these conditions. So I think if this is going to be something that we experience every year, I think some serious thinking is going to have to be done about um, what adaptations we need to make to make it work. Because it was very clear yesterday that this is not; um, these are not livable conditions. Um, it was quite a severe wake-up call um, for us, I think. Speaking of Laura Hood, editor of the Conversation UK, we've reached her in London about the UK heat wave. Let's listen to London Mayor Sadiq Khan talking yesterday about the heat wave, and I'll get your thoughts. Here he is. This is not normal temperatures for a summer in our city and our country. Uh, records are going to be broken uh, this year. Uh, 40 degrees is not normal. It's one of the consequences, by the way, 
of uh, climate change. It's quite a beggar's belief, by the way. None of those running to be the next Prime Minister seem to care about this issue. Uh, we would have these temperatures uh, of, you know, north of 35 degrees uh, one, once every 300 years. In previous decades, now it's once every three years. Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, I thought it was interesting taking a, a crack at some of the conservative MPs who want to become the next prime minister to replace Boris Johnson, saying they don't seem to care about this. Is that true? Is there any are the are the ruling conservatives taking any any political heat over this? They yes, they are. Um, what he's referring to there is is uh, so we've we've been having this um, very very intense um, leadership contest to replace Boris Johnson, where a, ver- a field of a lot of candidates has been very quickly whittled down to two. Um, so a huge amount has happened in the space of a week. And at one point, a few days ago, um, some of the leading contenders, some of the most uh, people being vaunted as the most interesting contenders, started to equivocate on our commitment to our net zero promises, started to sort of um, be a little bit standoffish about what our commitments actually were. Obviously, I, it's too much to say that they... Um, pledged to kind of t- overturn our net zero commitments. But the fact that the people that are vying to become prime minister would even sort of equivocate on these things just days before this huge, um, potentially life-changing heat wave uh, was uh, quite an extraordinary thing to see. Um, the people that are currently uh, still in the race are, are committed to um, net zero, but I think it was it was quite alarming and it sort of speaks to the tone of this entire um, leadership contest that they good. felt could do that. You got British climate change scientists weighing in here, just warning the public that get set for more of this. This could be obviously a regular occurrence, and we've certainly had our share of it here in British Columbia as well. Let's have a listen to this from the BBC. You will hear uh, British climate change professor Hannah Cloak here, and we'll get your thoughts. Let's have a listen. The UK is breaking temperature records. It's a heat wave that's kept people off work and children off school. And that, for some, has brought to mind the record-breaking summer of 1976. But what's happening now is not the same as what happened then. 1976 was indeed a heat wave, and we have had heat waves before. But the point is they're getting more more often, they're happening more often, and they're becoming more intensive. Yeah, so a lot of people were making that comparison yesterday, Laura, saying, well, okay, yeah, it's really hot today in London, but we've had we've had heat waves before, notably this 1976 summer. A lot of people seem to be referencing when it was super hot as well, not as hot as yesterday in London, but this is a different type of heat, and this could become, like, what kind of warnings are British people receiving now? Get set for more of this? This could be a regular thing now? I think we're sort of dealing with, I mean, we're really just only hours out of this situation yeah. right now. So I think there's a bit of a sense of shell shock, to be honest. Um, we're still kind of counting the cost of what's happened over the past 48 hours. So I think it will be very interesting to see how it affects um, our commitments, um, especially, as I said, with this leadership contest still ongoing. I thought it was very um, telling that Boris Johnson, for all his recent sins, did come out and say that this situation vindicates the um, the 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 climate change goals that we've set you know the goal is to reach net zero by 2050 and he said that we actually have to we must continue on that path 
Um, when we were hosting the COP26, the UK sought to become a world leader on this issue. And um, he's very been very committed to that. Um, and I think that it sort of behooves whoever follows him to maintain those commitments. It's something that the wider public absolutely wants to hear from their leaders, that all the polling suggests that um, the UK public wants heavy, com- heavy commitments on climate change, um, whether or not the people actually voting on the next prime minister do or not. The London Fire Department on a normal day will receive 500 calls in a day. Yesterday, the London Mayor Sadiq Khan said the London Fire Brigade received 2,600 calls as it dealt with multiple fires. He said there were 41 properties were destroyed in London yesterday from fire. Are there any estimates on fatalities in the United Kingdom related to this heat? We don't have the information on that yet, um, but the images of of what's happened in London are are particularly shocking. The UK does have wildfires, but they're a fairly rare occurrence. So the fact that so many happened yesterday and the fact that they happened in the capital is absolutely shocking. I think so many people just could not believe what they were seeing when they saw um, fires ripping through London homes as a result of this heat wave. Um, we don't know how many people have been died or injured yet. It's it's too soon to tell. Um, but the images are enough to scare anyone into feeling like we have to take some action. Um, yeah, we have to take this seriously. Even people who um, have been serious about the climate emergency for a long time will have found this to be a severe shock you know to live it firsthand is quite different to sort of talking about it in in theory i'm glad last question for you laura i'm glad to hear it's a little cooler today in london what's the weather forecast like for the remainder of the week um pretty warm but i think that it, at the moment you know even i to talk to you i had to close all the windows and i'm already feeling a little oh. bit warm um but yeah. anything feels bearable compared to what we had yesterday and before Okay, I hope you stay cool, as cool as possible. Laura, thank you for doing this for us. Thanks, Mike. Take care. We're talking about the heat wave that is broiling London and the rest of the United Kingdom. They set record high temperatures yesterday as temperatures soared over 40 degrees Celsius in the United Kingdom. Brutal heat wave in Europe as well. Have a listen to this here now from the BBC. This is Professor Miles Allen. He's a climate change scientist at Oxford University and saying this is a wake-up call to the human influences, human activities causing this. Here's what he had to say. Heat waves is one of the clearest signs in extreme weather of human influence on climate. It's, it's one of the extreme weather events that we can be most confident about are being affected by rising global temperatures. And this does connect to humans. The Met Office says it's 10 times more likely for the UK to have a 40-degree day than in a climate unaffected by human influence. Let's discuss now with my guest, Andrew Weaver, climate change scientist, of course, former leader of the BC Green Party. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Andrew, thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, as we watch this uh, event unfold in the United Kingdom, it's a little cooler there today, but man, oh man, yesterday, incredible fires throughout London. Busiest day for the fire department yesterday in London since the Blitz in the Second World War. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, again, um, this is what we've been saying as a climate science community for decades. I know that there are some who have woken up to the reality that climate change is here before us now and going to get a hell of a lot worse before it gets any better. Um, so it's 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 just a, a little bit frustrating for, you know, I, I hear Miles, a good buddy of mine in, in from Oxford speaking on the phone. You know, 
I've known Miles since the 1980s as well. Like we've been working in this field for such a long time. Nobody's been listening. And now the worry is, of course, people start listening and they 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 bypass the calm collective response process and move into hysteria. So, so you know, it's a it's a very serious issue that we need to deal with sooner than later. It's gonna get a lot worse, but there is always time to do more. Okay, is it time to do more to stop it or or are are we basically faced with trying to adapt to it? So, so here's the thing. Um, you cannot have any adaptation strategy unless you couple it with a mitigation strategy. What does it mean to adapt to a four-degree increased warm world? Well, you can't because going a four-degree warmed world in 150 years will not allow our existing civilization to survive that. So, uh, I mean, uh, that sounds extremist, but of course people will continue, but our built environment will collapse. Geopolitical instability will be unparalleled. Uh, you've got uh, people being moving from A to uh, B because they can't live where they are, extinctions, et cetera. So, so, so you need to have a mitigation strategy coupled with an adaptation strategy. And the, the, the appropriate policy perspective is to say every tenth of a degree we avoid by mitigative or uh, measures now to reduce emissions is a good thing. This whole notion of one and a half degrees, two degrees is ridiculous because we cannot stop one and a half degrees. We cannot stop two degrees. I mean, people don't realize this and i i you know i i get shouted down on twitter you're willing to give up blah 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 on one and a half degrees what people need to realize if everybody today in the world stopped burning greenhouse gases we would have a 0.6 degree warming almost not quite overnight but in the in the months ahead because of the fact that the aerosols which cool will actually rain out and leave the resulting uh, pro, uh, greenhouse gases to continue to warm we're at over 475 parts per million CO2 equivalent in the atmosphere. People get hung up on 415, but we're way above that. And the reason is there's things like methane and nitrous oxide, and there's cooling agents like aerosols, which also are a byproduct of fossil fuel combustion. So given we've warmed wow. 1.2 degrees, and given we have 0.6 degree warming if we stop burning fossil fuels today, that's 1.8 degrees. So let's get on with the notion of saying, Let's not make it to four. Let's start taking aggressive actions, but not get too hung up on these outrageous targets 40 years from now. And let's get on with it today. Speaking to Andrew Weaver about the European heat wave, uh, in my earlier discussion with Laura Hood, she's a journalist on the ground in London. Andrew, we talked a little bit about some of the climate change politics underway in the United Kingdom in the aftermath of this event. You know about climate change politics better than anyone. Mm -hmm. We saw the, the mayor of London yesterday, Sadiq Khan, criticize the ruling conservatives for not doing enough on this we just got 90 seconds left your, your thoughts yep. on this like does an event like this change the political equation on it the 90 second answer is i'm sick and tired of politicians no matter which party they're in shouting at other politicians about what they're not doing when if they took a good look in the mirror they're not doing anything themselves either so so you know the reality is it's it's no longer acceptable for an opposition party or a mayor or a council just to continue shouting at the clouds and blaming others Let's get rubber hit the road and you can show leadership in the city of London. What have you done in the city of London to position the yeah. city of London? You're that you're the, that's your jurisdiction. So time time over for people shouting at whether you're conservative, green, liberal, NDP, you're all guilty of not actually doing what is needed. So let's get on with it and work together because our future generations are going to look back upon the political establishment of today. And there will be some very, very hard historical judgments about what wasn't done as opposed to what could have been done. 
Andrew Weaver, thank you for your time today. Grateful to you. Pleasure. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk rising rents in B.C. Now, if you are a renter, a tenant in British Columbia, I don't have to tell you that it is expensive to rent in this province. We do have rent control laws in B.C., but there are lots of circumstances where rents can go up dramatically higher than the maximum allowable rent increase. The brand new report now just out from rentals.ca. It lists the most expensive rents in the entire country. Let's take a look at the list here. Which city do you think is in first place? dubious distinction highest rents in the country i think probably most people could guess yes it is vancouver one bedroom suite two thousand four hundred and twelve dollars the average rent two bedroom three thousand five hundred ninety seven most expensive in the entire country second place on the list toronto Twenty one ninety two, two thousand one hundred ninety two for a one bedroom in Toronto. A look at this now. Third place, third most expensive in all of Canada, Richmond, BC. Two thousand one hundred forty four bucks for a one bedroom. Wow, what other BC cities here in the top ten? Burnaby coming in at number five. New West also on the list here, number nine. And you go further down the list, Victoria. On the list, lots of BC Surrey on there as well. Lots of BC cities on this list of the most expensive cities to rent in Canada. We've talked about this on the show before. In a recent show, I spoke to Paul Dannison from rentals.ca. He says, yeah, renters having a tough time here. Have a listen. Well, what happens when somebody moves out, the rents can go up a lot higher. So that is, that's what we're seeing. Anybody who has to move or needs to move or wants to move, this is, this is a pretty tough time for renters. Okay. Let's discuss now with my guest, David Tang. David is a realtor. He's the co-founder of Tang and Kung Real Estate Group, uh, operating a lot in Richmond, third highest rents in the country. David, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, David, does this surprise you to see Richmond number three most expensive city in all the, in the entire country right now for rents? Being in the, um, in the industry myself, uh, it doesn't come as a big surprise, but I think it is a um, sticker shock for a lot of people. That's not one of the cities people come to conclusion that would have seen the highest increase. Yeah, why do you think it's happening? What's driving it? Well, there's a lot to unpack here. I, I think um, uh, what we really could affect the rental uh, rates. Always it comes down to supply and demand. But the other thing that I would always pay attention to is what type of supplier are we um, uh, working with? And so uh, Richmond in the last um, uh, year or so have had a number of new buildings completed. And so um, within existing rental, the rental rates uh, would have a certain uh, cap dictated every year on how much it can increase, right? So if it's a new development, brand new, never lived in, and they're going to put it on the market for rental, they can uh, start fresh from the rental rates um, at the moment in that time. And so that's probably uh, one of the factors that may contribute to Richmond being such. Um, the other thing to also note is that with Vancouver, um, Vancouver was always on the top in terms of the uh, rental prices. Um, and so people do look into alternatives. Uh, Richmond's been, uh, over the 
past number of years, one of those top destinations where people are looking for a compromise uh, that they can still get to downtown Vancouver or um, uh, along the Canada line. And, and in, in most cases, uh, Richmond's g- going to be that hub for it. Um, we are seeing uh, on the ground a lot of people that have originally started uh, rentals in um, downtown Vancouver or um, uh, other areas of the Vancouver west side. They will then consider somewhere a little bit uh, more value to that. And one other point is Richmond does have a lot of um, uh, buildings with, uh, when they build them, they they have a lot of uh, amenities. So we're seeing that a lot more um, where uh, they include gyms and um, possibly swimming pools and things like that. So um, uh, that does reflect on the rental prices as well too. Um, A lot of people are considering saving on their, on their um, gym passes and and, uh, paying a little bit more on the rent and being able to, uh, uh, combine that together in the place that they live. Um, and we see a little bit more of that type of development in areas, uh, communities like Richmond. It is discouraging, though, to see British Columbia City so high on this list for the most expensive places to rent a place in the entire country. Vancouver, number one. Richmond, number three. Especially when you consider that we're supposed to have rent control in this province, right? Like under provincial law, there is a maximum ceiling that a landlord can increase the rent. Like in 2022, uh, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, David, but I believe it's only 1.5% rent increase allowed. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So how come the rents are so high if we have rent control? Uh, there's, um, uh, I, I, I could take a uh, approach on what we see on the ground. I think um, number one is uh, we have a huge demand still on the rental side. So when the market was hot um, and uh, everybody was trying to get in on the in the market, often we see people who have saved enough down payment, they will rent for, let's say, a year or two, and then they'll try to buy their first home. Um, now, as the market goes up in price, that rental period then extends because they have uh, either been priced out of the market um, or they need to save up more than that two or three years, and, and, and that's what we've seen. Um, the other side to it is as the market um, starts to slow down, um, buyers are more cautious, and they, they, will, they will take into consideration of uh, seeing how things may, might play out, and they will likely make plans to renew or stay on their lease for a little bit longer. Um, and the other thing, too, is the uh, though prices... as Prices come down. We also look at the monthly affordability on their, uh, on a buyer who may get a mortgage. And as we know, the interest rates uh, are going to be aggressively uh, where that right now, where we're seeing them, them uh, a lot higher. So the monthly, even though prices, if they do come down um, in some areas they have, buyers are not jumping on there because they're weighing in, okay, how much is the interest um, Increase and how that's how that would affect a monthly mortgage. In some cases, we're seeing um, a couple hundred dollars uh, added to that uh, on their monthly mortgage, and so they'll evaluate the rental side of things. So, but from the demand right. side, um, I think there is that that consideration there that uh, rental is always going to be one of the the hot ticket. To answer your question about with the with the rent uh, ceiling, that's going to be for existing rentals. So people that's yeah. whatever they decide to rent, that's the maximum they can rent increase. But when there's new buildings that, that will be completed and, and they will start fresh on that rental price. Um, last year, we've seen a number of new buildings uh, completed in Richmond. Uh, and so that could push the numbers up 
across the board because those ones will, will, will bring in uh, the current rental rate, whereas some of the existing rental rates may have been a little bit behind market value. But we've seen a lot of new developments in Richmond we, specifically. Yeah, we all we also hear a lot of concerns though around what's known as a renoviction. So under British Columbia law, a landlord, you know, you can potentially evict a tenant if a suite requires uh, repairs or extensive renovations. And then when you have a new, a new tenant comes in under a brand new lease, then you can charge whatever you want. So a lot of people are complaining, well, landlords are using this as almost like a loophole to get rid of an existing tenant, bring in a new tenant with a much much higher rent, right? Like, are you seeing that? Are you hearing that? Like, do you think landlords are taking advantage that they might see how much rents have gone up and say, oh man, I could get a lot more for this place if I get a new tenant in there. Like those, that rent eviction, is is that happening a lot? Uh, I I wouldn't say that that doesn't happen, but for, from, from our, uh, from the ground, what we, what we, we don't see a lot of that. Um, uh, now that said, um, does this happen? It could. Uh, there are there are also a lot more measures in place these days um, uh, in in terms of that. So um, they have they have to provide the tenant with the first right of refusal uh, as such, and and uh, there's there's a lot more to it now. It's not just like you're going to be um, painting a room or changing a vanity and requiring the tenant to leave. So there's there's going to be a more uh, a specific requirements of how to best accommodate the tenant during that renovation without evicting them. Um, and that's got, that's over the years have, have been a lot more uh, strict in, in how that's measured. So I, I don't suspect it probably be the case uh, as of recent with, with all these measures. Um, now, before all this, uh, a number of years ago, could that happen? It could have. Um, but I, I, I personally haven't seen a whole lot of that. I still feel that uh, there is, um, uh, uh, there is still, a lot of uh, people looking for rentals and um, uh, maybe yeah. from this perspective, we are, every time we do a rental showing, we have seen uh, uh, a dozen plus uh, groups come through and, and sometimes uh, we are getting multiple applications for one property yeah. that does create, but, but there, there it's, it's a lot to unpack. I, I wouldn't say that there's sort of that, that one thing that's causing it, but, but we, we are seeing a lot of the ingredients creating a, uh, that perfect storm that does affect the uh, affordability of well, it's, it. It's like you said, it's like supply and demand is a big, is a big part of this. And then of course we have record high inflation in the country right now. And I know that impacts landlords as well. So landlords are, they're not immune from the effects of inflation. Their input costs to run a place or offer a place for rent are, are going up. So that pushes up rents as well. Let's have a listen to Paul Dannison. Again, he is from rentals.ca in an earlier show. Here he is talking about the impacts of inflation on rental prices. I mean, when you see prices going up everywhere for uh, for everything, I mean, as you mentioned, the price of food and gas, but also if uh, a landlord wants to renovate a place, the price for lumber and paint supplies has gone up and all of the cost that landlord incurs gets thrown into it too. So whenever there's high inflation, um, rents are going to go up just like everything else. David, could you comment on that, the impact of inflation, especially, let's say, on landlords? Absolutely. The landlords would, would, as much as possible, try to recover their costs as uh, much as possible. So everything from the rise in property taxes, uh, rise in strata fees, and uh, rise in material cost, uh, all that would would um, uh, 
affect the rental prices. And when it costs more to service and maintain a property, um, the tenant, sorry, the landlord would also consider to increase uh, the the rental rate uh, as as they can. Um, so what we've seen is that when the market uh, have high demand and the cost of maintaining these properties or, or owning these properties are higher as yeah. much as possible landlord will try to pass that uh, to the tenant so it does have that ripple effect and to sure. the affordability mm-hmm. yeah last question for you david what's the vacancy rate like right now is it tough to find a place it is i would say it's definitely challenging uh, especially for uh, pet owners especially um a lot of most properties are still uh not as pet friendly uh, in terms of the the rental, but uh, as far as the vacancy rate, um, I think what we're really seeing is is still hovering around that um, sub of one percent. So we're really seeing very very tight uh, um, inventory and uh, rising demand. So overall, uh, I mean, it's different with every area, but specifically, we're looking at um, Richmond, Vancouver. Um, for the most part, they're they're one percent or below. David, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the World Butcher Challenge now. It has been called the Olympics for butchers. Port Moody butcher Taryn Barker will be competing and representing Canada to prove to the world we're a cut above when it comes to Canadian butchers. You got Taryn standing by here first. Have a listen to this here. Now, this year's Butcher Olympics, so-called, will take place in Sacramento, California. Here is Danny Johnson. He's a Sacramento butcher, and he's the captain of Team USA, uh, talking about the World Butcher Challenge here. Have a listen. So the competition consists of 14 countries. U.S. is the host country at the Golden One Center. We have three hours and 15 minutes to take a half beef, a half hog, a whole lamb, and five chickens, and turn it into a retail-themed display. Wow. Teams of six people, so it's very visual. Um, I like to call it Iron Chef on steroids. Okay, it's like the Iron Chef on steroids. Let's check in with Taryn Barker now. Taryn is the owner of The Little Butcher in Port Moody, and she's a member of Team Canada at the World Butcher Challenge. Hey, Taryn. Hello. Hey, thanks for coming on. Boy, this is super Hi. exciting. Thanks for yeah, having this- me, Mike. I'm super happy to chat with you. Yeah, for sure. I, and I'm, we're happy to have you here. So let's talk about the World Butcher Challenge. Wow, this is amazing. So you heard him describe there like... Go into some detail, will you? Like, how does this work? How, how does this competition go down? Oh, sure. So, so yeah. So, I think this year there's 15 or 16 countries competing. So, it's uh, the most amount of countries they've had uh, compete so far. And a team of six. So, we, on our team, we have two of our, our members will be breaking the animals down. So, they'll be taking it, like, off of the rail from the side of beef or the, the side of pork. Uh, into some smaller pieces, and then they'll pass it down the line to two more of the members who do the trimming. Uh, so they'll, you know, perfectly trim off all the fat, any gristle, anything that needs to be cut off of it. And then it'll it'll come down to the line to myself and one other teammate, and we're the finisher, so we will be Ooh. finishing all the product. Yeah, we're the finisher. <laughs> so we'll be putting the final touches on all the products, and, and we do a lot of um mise en place like vegetable prepping as well so we'll be cutting all sorts of veggies and herbs and making seasonings and sauces and getting everything ready to be to be like you said uh, like a display counter so yeah wow okay that sounds really cool so (laughs) yeah so you've got like a half uh 
you know, I'm trying to picture half like a <laughs> half, yeah, half a cow. So I'm remembering yep. in in, Ro- in the movie Rocky when Rocky went and beat yep. up the side of beef. Like that's basically yep. what you're dealing with, right? Exactly. Yeah. If you yeah. have that visual, that's the perfect visual. Right. And then you've got like half <laughs> yeah. a pig. You got half a half pig a there pig, too. Yeah, okay. and a whole lamb, and then some chickens too. So yeah, we gotta we're gonna crank out some different sausages and burgers, and we'll have steak cuts, and we'll have marinated things and stuffed things and. And then now we have to kind of get it all to match with us an overall theme too. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Wow, that is really cool. And what is the time limit? How how much time do you have to do all that? Three hours and fifteen minutes. So it okay. sounds like an okay amount of time, but it definitely goes by real quick. <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound like a lot of time yeah. to me. That sounds like you're going to have. Uh, that's very challenging. Have you ever competed in this competition before, Taryn? I have not been to the World oh. Butchers Challenge yet. This is the first time Canada's put in a team, but I have been able to compete individually uh, across the world. I've gone to Brazil and New Zealand to do some individual competitions. So I've had a little taste for it, and now I'm really excited to get to this really big, big experience for the, the Olympics of butchery. So. Wow. Wow. Okay. So you're a competitive butcher. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. It's good. It's fun, right? Keeps us, uh, keeps us, um, you know, interested and engaged in it when there's, you know, different things to strive for. Like, there's a lot of opportunities in the butcher industry. So yeah. And then how yeah. do they, uh, how do they decide in the winter? I guess they've got judges who come in and, and judge it, right? Yes, absolutely. So I think every country has its own judge. Uh, and then that judge won't um, score that country. Uh, so it'll be like 15 other judges who are marking us, and it's, uh, it'll be on your, your knife work, it'll be on your teamwork, it'll be on your safety and, and sanitization, uh, the final yeah. display. and So, yeah, so there's a whole load of things that go. There's also, they, they deduct us points if we have a lot of waste, so that's a really good thing um, to include in it. But, yeah, all sorts of uh, things that they'll be looking at us for and walking around with clipboards over our shoulders, you know, looking at what we're doing. So, mm-hmm. Wow, talk about the pressure, man. The pressure is yeah. on. <laughs> definitely, definitely, yes. Definitely, <laughs> the, the crunch time is coming now, and the nerves are starting to kick in a little bit. But yeah. it's also very exciting, yeah. I'm speaking to Taryn Barker. She's a butcher. She's the owner of The Little Butcher in Port Moody, right? You got it. Port Moody, and she's a member of Team Canada at the upcoming World Butcher Challenge. How do you train for this, Taryn? Oh, well, we definitely have to practice together as a team as much as we can, which is, of course, a bit challenging because we're spread across Canada. There's a few of us in Ontario, a couple of us in B.C., and then a couple from Edmonton. So we try as often as we can. I'd say we've been lucky and have been able to, to practice and get together maybe once a month or every other month over the last couple of years. But yeah, with COVID, it definitely put a halt on some things because uh, it's a lot harder to train as a team when you're, you're not able to meet up as a team. So, yeah. Right. right. And when mm. you're, and when you're competing, do they bring in a crowd of spectators there? Like are people watching you? They sell tickets to this? Yeah, absolutely. They'll be wow. selling tickets. So yeah, I think if you look on the world butchers challenge website, they have, tickets there available i don't think they're super expensive because they want to you know get people in there and get a crowd going but that's at the golden one center which is where a basketball team plays so they got a good amount of seating for people yeah okay why do i suddenly want a ribeye steak for dinner now my (laughs) 
My mouth is watering here. Thank you. I know. <laughs> well, it's lunchtime too, so right, it's, you're yeah. getting hungry. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Taryn, yeah. I think it's really cool that you know you got a young woman competing in this. Like, are, is a, is the butcher business kind of like male dominated? It, it definitely has been. I think yeah. you're seeing more more females getting into it in the last maybe five or six years, which is awesome. Um, but it's still heavily male, male dominated. I think we're really lucky on Team Canada. Actually, there's two, two ladies, so we're doing pretty good. And then a couple of the other um, countries definitely have one or, one or two ladies as well. But, yeah, I think it's a good, uh, good industry. It's definitely, you know, it's a long days, hardworking, heavy lifting, you know, lots of things going on. But some people are excited about that. So whether you're male or female, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I love that. That's really great to see. What would you say is the toughest part of the competition, like the biggest challenge? Hmm, you know, I think it'll be getting over the initial nerves of having, yeah. you know, 15 world-class judges and a crowd of people and being surrounded by, you know, the other country's top butchers as well. I think once you get over that, maybe the first 10 or 15 minutes of, of the nerves, then I think it'll be, you know, smooth sailing from there. But I think that, that to me is the biggest thing right now. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's interesting that you're the, the finisher, so you're sort of the end of the line. You're kind of the anchor. Yeah. Boy, that sounds like a yeah. real important part of the process. Yes, we will be putting all the bells and whistles and bows and things onto, <laughs> onto all the products, so we've got to make it look just, just right. Okay, is there a prize if you win? Like you get a million dollars or something, or how does it <laughs> well, work? That would be lovely, but uh, <laughs> I think it's a lot of bragging rights. They definitely yeah. have, uh, they'll probably have medals or something. Then they also, besides just like the overall winner, they have awards for best beef sausage, best pork sausage, best pork product. So there's a, there's kind of a, a bunch of different awards that they can give away, which is exciting as well. So even if you don't win the overall, uh, you could still win some categories of prizes. So, well, Taryn, I I'm rooting for you, and I, I'm sure Thank everyone you. listening is too. Where is the little butcher if they want to come out and check out your butcher shop? Where is that? Where are you located? So yeah, so we're right in Newport Village in Port Moody. So it's a, a lovely little village. There's about 40 shops in here. Uh, we're the little butcher shop, and then there's a fish store, a produce store. So just off Ioko Road in Port Moody. All right, Taryn. Good luck. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for having me.